because they insist on, you know, essentially saying that homosexuality and pedophilia or trans identity and pedophilia have this close relationship if they are not the same thing. Welcome to another episode of America Explained, the podcast that brings the important voices and perspectives shaping American politics, foreign policy and culture to an international audience. Hi folks, welcome to another episode of America Explained, the podcast that brings you an international perspective on American politics and foreign policy. Today we're discussing what I think is one of the most important cultural and political stories in America right now, which is the anti-LGBT panic, which we see sweeping large parts of the American right and increasingly finding its expression in mainstream society and in concrete policies that target the rights of LGBT folks. So today we're going to take you through the history of anti-gay and anti-LGBT politics in the United States. We're going to talk about what's driving today's panic right now, and we're going to talk about some of the concrete ways that this is affecting people in the United States. So Catherine, it really seems to me that we lived through a long period of what seemed like steady progress towards increased rights for LGBT people in America. Then it seems like the, the, the story just suddenly flipped in the last couple of years. Yeah, exactly. Because we had, you know, in 2015, same-sex marriage was legalized nationwide. And it seemed like there were a lot of advances for LGBT people. But then, I don't know when exactly it started, but to me, it seems like in the last three, four years, things have just suddenly seemingly taken quite a turn. And, you know, not sure if that's exactly due to the advances directly or if there's other factors at play. So, It'll be good to talk about that. I think that like one thing that often seems to me is that the right wing in America, kind of the conservative media complex, has fantastic message discipline. Like they pick a topic that they are going to make the topic of the month or of the year, and then they just all turn their attention to doing that. And I mean, we saw that with critical race theory, which is you know, was for a year or so kind of the designated bogeyman. And then we've seen this relentless focus on on trans issues. And I really do think that right now we're living through one of the most intense anti-LGBT episodes in American history. And I think it's useful to step back a bit and see how this started and how it resembles previous such periods. So, of course, there's a long history in the US, as in most countries, of anti-LGBT policies and attitudes. There's also a history of these large-scale moral panics that target homosexuals and trans people at particular times. And probably the most famous of these is the so-called Lavender Scar, which occurred after World War II, when there was really intense national attention focused on the claim that the federal government was full of homosexuals and that these homosexuals were in some way a threat to American national security. What was particularly interesting about the Lavender Scar was that it occurred at a time when, in other ways, at least some elements of US culture were becoming slightly more accepting of homosexuality. So World War II has been called by one historian, quote, a national coming out experience because it created so many male-only and female-only spaces. So places like the barracks, you know, where soldiers were training, like the factories that were suddenly full of only female employees because all the men had gone off to fight the war. 
And the creation of these, you know, all male, all female subcultures and growing urbanization and the kind of anonymity that comes with urbanization, particularly in Washington, D.C., which is where national policymakers live and, and they are. So, you know, they, they saw this happening around them in D.C. This really created the space for gay subcultures to exist in the U.S. in the way that they hadn't previously. So it wasn't really until the 1960s and the 70s that you started to get this phenomenon of having gay neighborhoods like Fire Island on Long Island or Hillcrest in San Diego. I used to live in Hillcrest, by the way, uh, with my wife, but it was a fantastic neighborhood. I loved it. But homosexuality was becoming increasingly visible during and after World War II. And the Lavender Scar was in many ways a reaction against this visibility by conservatives, and particularly ones who thought that the presence of homosexuals in the government was a security threat. And they kind of had like two arguments for why this was supposedly problematic. The first was that they just said that, well, homosexuals are just by definition these kind of weak and degenerate and, and morally suspect people, so we do not want them making our foreign policy. But they also argued that homosexuals were particularly susceptible to blackmail. So like the Soviets could find out that someone was gay and then they could blackmail that person into giving them secret information. Uh, of course, I mean, th that argument was so circular because it was only because homosexuality was stigmatized in the first place that that blackmail would supposedly work. But this became anyway an excuse for stigmatizing homosexuality further. So the Lavender Scale was based on this idea that basically gay people mean that we might lose the Cold War. And that was the basis of the Lavender Scale. And, and it really did an awful lot to, to drive homosexuals kind of back into the closet after World War II and, and stamp down on their rights. So I feel like today there's not really that national security aspect of it with LGBT people. But are there other similarities between, you know, the Lavender Scare and the backlash that we're seeing today? Yeah, I, I think that there are a couple of similarities. So I think in some way, this anti-LGBT panic has similar roots. So there have been really huge advances in gay rights over the past dec two decades or so. So before Lawrence versus Texas, which was a Supreme Court case, which was only decided in the year 2000, homosexual sex was illegal in over a dozen states, including Texas and Florida and Michigan before that Supreme Court decision. Then the, another really significant case was um, Obergefell versus Hodges, which you already mentioned in 2015. This established the right to same-sex marriage. And I think that as well as this kind of growing legal acceptance of homosexuality, we've also seen a massive increase in the prominence of gay characters in popular culture. And I think that this growing cultural presence of homosexuality has an awful lot of explanatory power here. Most people don't know and never did know what um, LGBT people were doing behind closed doors, but they really kind of object to the idea that what they see as this lifestyle of homosexuality suddenly suddenly has cultural prominence and is accorded what they see as respect within within popular culture and cultural conservatives and particularly evangelicals have taken this as a sign that something is really badly wrong with american society and with what they understand to be christian values and of course we should stress that this is their understanding of what they consider Christian values, which are often not what I would consider to be Christian values. But they view their definition of Christianity radically under threat. 
And so you see, just like under the lavender scar, this same kind of narrative of civilizational degeneracy that basically the 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 respect that is accorded to LGBT people in popular culture is seen as showing that something is really wrong with America because according to cultural conservatives, homosexuals shouldn't be celebrated. They should be condemned and, and driven out of public life or if not something worse. I think though, like another part of this is how actually this current LGBT panic has really also been shaped by the rise of Trump and Trump's relationship with Christian nationalism. Yeah, I think what you mentioned about you know, TV show characters is really interesting because if you think about a show like Friends or something from the 90s and early 2000s, there might have been a token gay character or like Chandler's dad who was kind of mocked in that show. But then in the last 10 years or so, we've seen more positive visibility for LGBT characters in media. So I think that's very true that there's been backlash against that. But then also with Trump, I mean, he's not really a model Christian and I don't think he considers himself particularly religious or he doesn't seem to but so why do you know evangelicals and people on the right you know support him in this way well right that's totally true so i mean as we're recording this it's mere hours from when trump is going to be formally arraigned for having given hush money to a porn star so no you know absolutely trump is not really a christian but in this strange way, he's come to be a real symbol and a real person of importance for Christian conservatives. And one of the reasons for that is because he actually delivers on their or has delivered on their policy priorities, you know, so he put justices on the Supreme Court who then have outlawed or allowed the outlawing of abortion. But many, many Christian conservatives also are very inspired by his aggressive style and his complete disregard for social norms. And they've kind of responded to this by really escalating their rhetoric and their demands. So they see in Trump somebody who is, again, this is in their view, someone who is willing to really stick it to political correctness, who is willing to really stick it to liberal cultural values. And as a result, they have, have escalated their rhetoric and, 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 and what they demand. So they argue that these recent social changes actually pose an existential threat to American civilization and particularly American children. And they argue that supposedly traditional conservative principles like the freedom of speech should completely go out of the window. And in fact, all of the principles on which America was founded on basically go out of the window or can go out of the window if that's what is necessary to save America from this pro-LGBT social change. And they see Trump or someone like Trump as a strong crusading figure who doesn't care what the liberals think, who can kind of take the fight to, to liberals like this. And so you saw that the, during the Trump presidency and, and also afterwards, this whole thing became part of a much broader debate on the right about the extent and the uses of government power. Trump inspired a lot of conservative Christians to basically demand that state power be used to actively coerce and to shape American society into following their understanding of Christian values. And they think basically that the principles that American conservatives by and large used to focus on, things like the freedom of speech or the freedom of religion, were not enough and that government needs to be controlled by culture warriors who will harness the power of the state 
to try to actively stamp out homosexuality and trans people and drive them from the public sphere. Yeah, so that's a pretty alarming goal that they have, but how exactly are they trying to go about that? Well, as well as been focused on rolling back legal rights like same-sex marriage, they've also placed a lot of emphasis on wanting to eliminate cultural expressions of homosexuality or trans identity. So you can see the prominent role that this anti-LGBT panic played in these debates by actually looking at the beginnings of this broader battle on the American right over the use of government power and over the role of traditional values like freedom of speech. And this actually all started or, or really came to prominence over a series of events which are called Drag Queen Story Hour. So Drag Queen Story Hour is a program which was founded in 2015 that sends drag queens into places like public libraries to read stories to children in an attempt to expose children to diversity and to encourage the acceptance of trans people. Now, conservatives have instead depicted this as essentially an attempt to groom children to basically create a space in which homosexuals and trans people can sexually prey on children because they insist on, you know, essentially saying that homosexuality and paedophilia or trans identity and paedophilia have this close relationship if they are not the same thing. And so in 2019, this became part of this furious debate on the right after the conservative writer Sir Robert Mari called these events demonic and basically argued that the existence of Drag Queen Story Hour showed that American culture had been poisoned somehow and conservatives needed to grab control of the institutions of the state to actively stamp it out. And in the essay where he made this point, he railed really strongly against other more libertarian conservatives, particularly a man called David French, who's a Christian libertarian who's been very outspoken against Trump. He's now a columnist at the New York Times, which tells you something about how Trump has like reordered the politics of the of, of American conservatism, because I don't think 10 years ago, you know, David French would have ever been asked to be a, a New York Times columnist. But Saurabh Amari said basically that the approach that's been taken by people like French to try to um, maintain Christian values in America has been completely useless. Now, French has spent most of his career going to court defending, like, say, the free speech rights of Christians or the right to Christians to practice their religion under the Bill of Rights. And Omari says that essentially this is a defensive kind of, of weak approach and that what is actually needed is to just throw the Constitution out the window entirely and focus on destroying the, the, the culture and the society that leads to the creation of things like Drag Queen Story Hour in the first place. So Amari and others like him have this much more authoritarian vision of how the power of the state should be used to police and control American culture and society. And I think now we're going to take a quick break, and then when we come back, we're going to talk some more about how they've tried to do that. You're listening to America Explained, a podcast about the United States for an international audience. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, tell a friend, and leave a positive review on your podcast platform. 
So a lot of what you were talking about has really grown in the media and in the discourse in the last three or four years. And there's been a lot of growing vitriol towards that LGBTQ community that's coming out of the far right, but also even some of the more mainstream right-wing media in the U.S. And I think one of the main accusations that's being used against the LGBT community by the right and in the media is t- talking about grooming, which is a legitimate term, but they're like turning it against the LGBT community. And so grooming is you know, a real thing that happens. It's defined as manipulative behaviors that are used to gain access to a potential victim, coerce them to agree to the abuse, and reduce the risk of being caught. So normally when you think about this, it could be something like a coach or relative or other authority figure who's giving gifts and building trust and a relationship with a minor that becomes inappropriate and abusive. But it's not just this. It could also be online. So it is a serious thing that abusers do. But the issue that we see now is that uh, homophobes and people in the far right are associating LGBT people with pedophilia and accusing them of grooming children. And so, you know, they're accusing basically anyone who teaches about LGBT issues in schools or things like the Drag Queen Story Hour that you mentioned of grooming and supposedly trying to recruit children to join the LGBT community and become gay or trans. And, you know, obviously this is not how it actually works. I saw someone comparing this recently to the fact that there's seemingly, because now you see people on the right saying that there's suddenly more gay people today than there used to be. And someone was comparing this to the fact that there's suddenly more left-handed people now than there used to be. But obviously, in both cases, it's not a case of there being more people. It's just a case of society shifting and becoming more accepting. Yeah, and I think that it's really notable how quickly this went from the very fringes of the far right to the absolute mainstream. So, like, I don't know if people remember, but the QAnon conspiracy theory got its beginning with this idea that there was a pizza restaurant in Washington, D.C. that was owned and attended by prominent Democrats. And then it was actually the front for a child trafficking ring that provided, like, the children that Democratic pedophiles needed access to. But, you know, now it's, like, right in the center that these accusations of grooming come from everybody, from, like, conservative writers, conservative politicians. So how did it migrate to the mainstream so quickly? Yeah, exactly. So you talked a bit about Amari's writing back around 2015, 2019. And so since then, there's been really concerted efforts from activists on the more mainstream right to make this an issue that anyone who cares about so-called traditional socially conservative values, whether that's Christian or not, to make them think that this is a direct threat to them and their children and their livelihoods and just the country in general. And so, yeah, while homophobia has always existed, as you talked about earlier, it's taken on a bit of a new turn recently. And these activists are using it as part of this culture war on the right, along with critical race theory, which you also mentioned, to pursue concrete right-wing policy goals. And so one of these activists is someone named Chris Rufo. And he, I think, is an example of someone who's really willfully misinterpreting a lot of aspects of so-called woke culture. I don't really know what else to call it, uh, to try and push a right-wing anti-LGBTQ and anti-equity and anti-public education agenda. So he is an activist at the conservative Manhattan Institute, but he's very active on social media. And 
he is, you know, always posting and trying to attempt to redefine and weaponize things like critical race theory and LGBT issues in order to promote this conservative policy agenda. And what I find really interesting about him is that he's open about the fact that he's, you know, willfully misinterpreting these things. He's admitted and will readily admit that he's weaponizing and manipulating a lot of issues to get this right-wing base riled up. Yeah, and I think one aspect of this which is very interesting is the way that it's intersected with this broader conversation on the right about public education over the last few years. So, like, a lot of this got its well, this debate about public education really got turbocharged by the coronavirus pandemic when suddenly, like, basically just a lot of people were super annoyed at their schools that they were having to homeschool their children for years on end. But they also kind of got this insight, I think, or this interest in the governance of their schools and the curriculum that their children was were being taught because they were seeing it on their computer screens every day while their, their kids were, were taking school remotely. So, like, what... How does this anti-LGBT part of the equation intersect with this broader debate about public education and what kinds of goals is Rufo trying to achieve in this war on public education? Yeah, so the Manhattan Institute where he works is, uh, they have this model that they've released for school practices relating to sexuality and gender. And this includes proposals to forbid schools from offering extra credit to students engaged in political activism or government internships. So it's quite extreme, but it also, related to what we're talking about, includes a provision that, despite any laws that mandate sex education, would allow parents to attempt high school age, which is when you're 14 or 15 to 18 years old, students from any or all sex education classes. And, you know, so they're really trying to interfere in the public school system. I think their ideal would be, you know, having private schools and charter schools, um, instead of public schools being the main and well-funded form of education in the U.S. And so, yeah, they want to promote a more privatized and small government type of education. And so I think that, yeah, they're really using these LGBT and also critical race theory issues. Like, that's kind of secondary. I think it's just an issue that they've latched on to in order to pursue these goals of less edu- funding for public education. And I think that What's the most dangerous about Chris Rufo is that he tries to rephrase things in such a way that makes these proposals seem reasonable and point out, you know, what seem like extreme behaviors on the left. But it's a really slippery slope to an encroachment of politics in the public school system, which is exactly what they claim to be trying to avoid. And it's also not just him. There's also a really popular Twitter account called Libs of TikTok, which reposts uh, TikToks from so-called libs about issues such as systemic racism and LGBT and gender issues. And it's usually videos that are, you know, viewed as sort of cringy in a way. And the purpose of this is once again to show people what they view as the most out there or extreme aspects of some people on the left and make it seem as though their beliefs and their way of life and their children are at risk. Yeah. And I think that like a really important aspect of the contemporary culture war is the fact that on social media, you can always find examples of the other side of the debate doing and saying things that seem legitimately crazy. You know, there are like 
tens of thousands of public schools in America and like on any given day like a teacher in some public school somewhere is probably doing something that many people might regard as questionable or can be taken out of context and presented in a way that you know appears questionable and you know before Twitter existed you just never would have heard about that but like now it's it's really easy to create this kind of propaganda that takes extreme examples and then presents them as the mainstream nutpicking i like to call it like it's not cherry picking it's nutpicking and so like it, it is is this just something that is happening on social media and that is kind of like fueling the culture war or is this something that's actually gaining a lot of traction among the broader right and and how does that kind of relate to the sorts of policy changes that we see as a result of this yeah that's a good point because you know not that many people are actually active on twitter compared to the general population so you might think that both of these chris rufo and the libs of tiktok account are just kind of yeah only known to people who are also spending time on twitter but In this case, Rufo in particular, he has a lot of political ties and policy influence on the right. And the person behind Libs of TikTok, since her identity was revealed, she's been on Tucker Carlson, on Fox News and other shows like that. So even people who are not active on social media at all, maybe they're on, you know, Facebook instead of Twitter, um, those kinds of people who do just, you know, spend their nights watching Fox News. So that's millions of Americans are probably aware. And so these ideas, even though they take place on a smaller aspect of social media, do have a lot of wide influence. So we're going to take a short break now, but after the break, uh, we'll come back and talk about some of the actual policy outcomes that these types of, this type of rhetoric and this influence has had in the US. You're listening to America Explained, a podcast about American politics, foreign policy and culture for an international audience. Like it? Then tell a friend and help us grow. So over the last, well, I guess eight years now, we've seen this kind of proliferation of legal measures in states that are targeting the rights of LGBT people. So probably the the first really prominent example of this was the so-called bathroom bill in North Carolina in 2016. So bathroom bills essentially are about whether trans people can use public the public bathroom that accords with their gender identity or if they must use the bathroom which is assigned to the sex that they were assigned at birth, even if that is not the sex that they identify as. So North Carolina in 2016 passed a bill that basically said that people must use the bathroom that um, matches the the gender that they were assigned at birth. And this created like a really, really huge backlash. It was seen as a big cracking down on the rights of LGBT people. You know, if it was going to force like someone who 
presented and understood themselves as a man to suddenly have to go into the women's bathroom, which is obviously, you know, and vice versa. That's obviously like an incredibly uncomfortable situation for them. It, it was kind of a signal from society that we don't accept the identity that, that you, um, you have for yourself and you have to fit into the box that we say that you fit into. And this legislation came under really, really enormous criticism. This was actually kind of the beginnings also of the Republican debate and the Republican idea of woke capitalism, because many corporations criticized this North Carolina bill. They threatened to withdraw investment from the state, to take jobs away from the state. And eventually it was partially repealed after this, this backlash, which also involved a, a lot of businesses as well. But parts of that law still remain on the books, and, and these bathroom bills now have actually expanded to, to across states in the South, so Tennessee, Alabama, Oklahoma, now Arkansas has been added to the list this year as well. So, like, I mean, you know, there was this backlash against the original bathroom bill in North Carolina, but now they're spreading and they're becoming more accepted, so... This is a really concrete example of, of how the debate has shifted in the last couple of years. Yeah, and then also since 2022 in Florida, there's been this don't say gay law is the name that it's been given that was signed into law by Governor Ron DeSantis. And this is a law that prevents any discussion or instruction related to anything LGBT through the third grade, which is around age nine. But it also makes it easier for parents to sue schools if they don't like what their children are being taught and it also means that schools must tell their parents, must tell students' parents if their children are receiving any mental health services. And so this is a bill that's gotten a lot of attention. There's also been a what's been called a book ban in Florida, which is a law that requires school libraries to allow for input on the books that they have available. So it makes it a lot easier for, you know, some fringe group to raise concerns about books that deal with things like racism or LGBT issues or even just difficult subjects such as the Holocaust or um, like death and suicide and things like that. And so there's been these types of bills in Florida. But then what I think is really alarming is that nationwide, there's been a lot of proposed copycat bills. And this really shows Ron DeSantis's influence, I think. So so there's been, you know, right-wing activists in other states who take the language from these Florida bills and then try to promote them in their own state legislatures. And so, you know, Ron DeSantis, he's going to be running for president in 2024, and he has quite a lot of influence on the right. And there's been reports from the Human Rights Campaign that say that a lot of this rhetoric surrounding grooming has really intensified since the Florida Don't Say Gay law. And a lot of the most significant people spreading this grooming narrative include uh, someone named James Lindsay, who has worked with Chris Rufo, who I talked about earlier, as well as representatives Marjorie Taylor Greene from Georgia and Lauren Boebert from Colorado. And both of these politicians might be considered somewhat fringe Republicans, but as more and more states pass these types of laws, that might no longer be the case. So... While Trump was able to win support from cultural conservatives on the right, DeSantis is the person actually making these policies, and there's a chance that he could be the next president. So I think that the implications of this are really, really wide, not only for the LGBT people who are affected by the laws, but also for 
everyone in the U.S. who's affected by these attacks on free speech. Yeah, and I think that DeSantis has really purposefully attempted to build this case for himself that basically I am the guy that gets these things done, right? So he tries to present himself as a more effective Trump and a more zealous Trump. Like, you know, Trump actually is kind of a loser, like he loses elections, he didn't really implement that many policies, but look, I'm actually doing this. But it's really notable that Ron DeSantis took a look at today's conservative movement and today's Republican Party and decided, right, if I need to demonstrate that I'm the guy who gets things done, this is the policy area that I should focus on. And we see, you know, actually all across the US and other states as well, other conservative governors, conservative legislatures trying to um, implement similar policy goals. So, you know, this the, the, the stuff about schools and about free speech is incredibly troubling. And actually, the way that a lot of this legislation operates is that it is drafted in such a vague way that it basically just means that if a teacher wants to keep their job, they just have to avoid all discussion of these issues whatsoever because it's not really defined exactly what you can say or you can't say. So, you know, there's already cases of teachers been driven from their jobs, teachers who are LGBT, who are now not able to express their identity in the workplace at all because that could be a violation of this law. So this free speech stuff, you know, although in a way this kind of continues a a decades-old conservative um, uh, effort to affect and stamp down the teaching of sex education in schools, it's also been joined by you know, legislation that's going outside the classroom and actually going into people's homes, into their private life, into their medical life. So much of this legislation tries to ban gender affirming care for minors. So we've seen bills that um, that try to do this in Florida and in Kentucky. So this basically means that if, you know, you have a child who is 12 years old or 13 years old or 14 years old, and is suffering from gender dysphoria, who does not identify with the sex that they were assigned at birth, at the moment they can access care that allows them to perhaps um, delay puberty, to try to begin a transition, or to in other ways affirm their gender. But there's a big effort to stamp out access to this care. Some of these bills also actually have implications for the doctors who may provide this care. So this is going to work similarly to how abortion bans work, where basically a doctor has this hazy legal liability where, you know, in the case of abortion, if if a doctor um, in many places in the South right now provides an abortion to a woman who may be like at risk of dying if she doesn't have that abortion because of some kind of medical complication, that doctor could suffer legal consequences for that. And similarly, doctors can suffer um, legal consequences for, for providing gender-affirming care to minors. Now, this is, you know, both in the case of abortion and of gender-affirming care, this has really, really bad implications. I mean, women are dying in America right now because doctors are scared to give them the care that they need because they, when they are pregnant. And similarly, we know that trans youth especially suffer absolutely appalling rates 
of depression, of anxiety, of other mental health problems. And being denied the gender affirming care that they need is another way that society is saying to them, you don't belong here, right? We're not going to help you to express the identity that you need to express in order to find your place in society. And that can just have devastating consequences for the mental health of a, a, a population group that already disproportionately suffers from mental health problems and, and also commits suicide. Finally, uh, another um, expression of, of these policies is that so in Texas, Texas has defined it as child abuse for parents to provide or give access um, to gender affirming care to their children. So many, many Texas families whose children live their lives as the opposite gender to the one they were assigned at birth now have to live in fear of their children being taken away from them by a state agency because it is defined as child abuse for them to help their children get the care they need to express the gender identity that they want to express, which is often, you know, very, very, very important for, for, for the mental health of those minors. So you can just imagine the terrible, terrible bind that this puts parents in, that they have to live under that shroud of thinking that the state might take their children away from them just because the child, you know, they want to help the child that they love to, to express their identity. So there's a really, really nasty coercive element to all of this that is already undermining and destroying people's lives where it's happening and you know you you just well i'm almost lost for words here catherine you know i i i just think that it's so terrible you know that and particularly because so many of the people who are doing this are so cynical about it. I don't really think that Ron DeSantis believes that trans people are destroying America, right? But he doesn't care who he hurts to get ahead. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, there's consequences of all of these policies that, yeah, it's undermining the public school system. It's affecting people's lives directly in a really harmful way. And yeah, a lot of these people, the politicians especially, I think they're yeah, just weaponizing these issues because they can get people riled up even if they don't really care about it that much. Because, I mean, yeah, even a few years ago, I feel like, you know, the average Republican was a bit more, you know, classically fiscally conservative, socially liberal, but that's not really the trend that we're seeing now. Yeah, this certainly isn't Mitt Romney's Republican Party anymore. And I mean, you know, just yesterday, Asa Hutchinson, who's the former governor of Arkansas, entered the presidential race. And, you know, he's he's kind of supposedly the more moderate candidate here. And so when he was governor of Arkansas, he did like many of these things, but he just refused to go, you know, as far as other, other Republicans do. And, uh, you know, there's just no... There's no room for just what I view as sanity on these issues rest left in the Republican Party, which I guess is just another issue where that's the case nowadays. So thanks for listening to this episode. You know, I always say at the end of episodes of America Explained that we, we seem to be too depressing. Um, 
you know, maybe we can try and come up with some upbeat news for our next episode. But I hope that we've helped you to understand the, the, the historical roots and the realities of this anti-LGBT panic in America today, the way it's been instrumentalized by Republican politicians, and much more besides. So thanks a lot for listening, and we look forward to seeing you next time. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Thanks for listening to America Explained, which is brought to you by host Andy Gawthor and researcher, editorial assistant, and sometimes co-host Catherine Wood. If you like America Explained, please consider checking out our free newsletter, which you can find a link to in the show notes. That's all for this episode, and I look forward to speaking to you next time.